Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It is Mark's Madness, and we are once again doing it again. Doing it again. Yes, yes. Back back at it as we always are want to be. Uh, this is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will be gallivanting through some more Black Reconstruction in America here in just a few moments. But before that, uh, some shit done gone down this week. Yeah. So we get to do some talking about it. Yeah, current event seems to be more and more populated um, with subjects as time goes on. It's Things are getting intense out there. Um, some of that is draconian measures um, by the U.S. government. Um, and some of that is capitalism reaping the rewards of climate change. And we've got a whole lot of both of those going on right now. So I, yes. I think the, the most important place to start probably is in Texas. I never want to start in Texas. I And it's, it's a few things in Texas. There's the big one. Um, the big one being that the we talked about this for a while where Democrats and Republicans are basically the same. It's not disingenuous to say that. That's what people need to understand more than anything. But we know that's not 100% true. We know that's 99% true. We know they, they just overwhelmingly agree on just about everything. From there's, there's, I mean, not even just the quote-unquote bipartisan stuff and the official U.S. enemies, but the stuff that just goes unsaid, right? Like you just expand police. You just... You know, capitalism is is great, and and you you have to govern, and violence is bad, and and all that bullshit, right? Peaceful protesters are good, but rioters are bad, and everything. And the few places they are different are important. They they matter. They're life and death for for thousands, sometimes millions of people. The fact that that pales in comparison to where they're the same and where they are lined up against you. Um, as any working class person, especially colonized people and especially people outside of the borders of the United States, uh, really shows just how horrific they are. But the one place that they're supposedly different and, and Democrats always seem to be weirdly incapable where they're supposedly different, which at some point you've got you've to say that they're not bumbling. They just it's somewhere between. They want to pretend like they're on your side and they're actively helping the Republican sabotage you and they just don't give a shit, right? But wherever in that range they land, you know, very few of them are actually bumbling, right? We talk about this all the time. Like Democrats have, have something that, that's obviously their, their quote-unquote party line and they have, they have the total partisan vote. And then like one or two of them just crosses that partisan line or they act like, oh, my God, we can't go. What do they call it? Nuclear to make it sound scary. We can't go nuclear and, and break the filibuster or whatever the hell. Right. Or we you know, we can't push it and not push through a Supreme Court nominee. Right. The Republicans will dick around Supreme Court nominee. But ours go through. But then everything is the Supreme Court. That's our only defense. That's our only politic is protect the Supreme Court majority. Just don't actually put any effort into it. And. That's reared its ugly head. Um, so in Texas, they, they put out a law where not only are people like incentivized to snitch on people for getting an abortion or providing an abortion, 
which is horrifically violent. And this comes at the exact same time that they opened up a relaxation in uh, gun purchasing where, you know, you don't have to have a license or training to get a gun. Right. So it's much, much easier to obtain firearms while you're supposed to snitch on people at abortion clinics. And those two laws go go hand in hand. They're to intimidate people out of getting abortions. Um, but they've banned abortions after, what is it, six weeks, six nine weeks. weeks, six weeks. Six weeks. Just an absurdly short amount of time. I mean, the, the idea that people even would know they're pregnant by that time is, is ridiculous, right? Um, and so, you know, I mean, this affects people. It, it, this is a healthcare issue, right? This is a healthcare issue hedging against abusive relationships. This is a healthcare issue hedging against the dangers and the, the bodily changes of pregnancy, right? Um, I mean, one thing I, I've had to, to speak about before to people is they'll be like, oh, well, you know, abortion can do raise your, your chances of, you know, this or this or this cancer. Not only are those numbers always deflated from the quote unquote pro life lobby, but you actually get them back to their numbers. Sure. You know what raises your chances of all those things more? Full-term pregnancy. Um, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> it, it's a healthcare issue. And there's already been, I mean, it took 13 hours into effect and someone had attempted a self-induced abortion and died. I took third, it took no time at all. Yeah. Um, there's always this call like, well, just go to other states. But neighboring states don't have very many clinics or, or any funding for it. And people are not getting abortions because they're wealthy and have all the time in the world. Right. Uh, again, you know, I mean, people that that it, they're worried about being snitched on, they have to keep this stuff fairly secret. There's a reason this is a private health care matter. And you want them to just up and leave for a few days out of state with this magical money they have. Usually you have to go back for two visits too. you just have to go for a referral and then come back for the actual abortion and then deal with with, you know, the, the other clean up situations day to day at home when you get back. So it's, it's very hard to be discreet about this when you're driving out of state. Um, thankfully though, I do think in Nevada because it is constitutionally protected, they have programs that, that can help. But again, it's not Western Texas that's more populated and you run back to the same issues anywhere in the state. Um, and so this is a terrifying misogynistic, deadly subject. And this is supposed to be, the ultimate difference between Democrats and Republicans, right? I mean, people can talk about like union support, but we know that's kind of eh. People yeah. can talk about, you know, hawkish versus dovish, but we know how. Oh, my God. Yeah. Are. Come on now. Um, the big supposed difference, the tangible difference you could point to in the parties, you know, the, the tangible differences are gay marriage and abortion rights. And. I mean, in 2017, Nancy Pelosi openly basically stated, like, abortion is not really an issue that Democrats are going to fight on anymore. And while Republicans, I mean, they're, they, it was not, it's been obvious that they've been furiously attacking this specific issue for a while. Yeah. And so the Supreme Court upheld this law five to four. And you see all the, all the, like, um, Oh my God, you know, anywhere from technically Roe v. Wade isn't overturned and this only affects Texas, which is kind of ridiculous, to like, aha, shoot Texas into the sun as if they're the people that are affected by this are not in Texas, right? Yeah. Why else would you care about this law? And you're damning those people along with the Republicans if you say that. Um, to like, you know, this goes back to to Jill Stein or Bernie Sanders or Ralph Nader in 2000, oh, just ruining don't, everything. Don't, don't, don't miss out on the best one. The best one uh, has been, well, now the people of Texas know what it's like to live under the Taliban. 
Oh yeah, that's that's again. I go back. What's what's the the famous tweet? Is like Americans do something American. America, Americans do something American in America. What are we a bunch of Asians? Asians yeah. Um, you know, I mean, again, that's overt Orientalism, right? It takes cr- white supremacist Christian fundamentalism and it goes, oh, that group we hate over there in that other country that we call backwards people for for not being white. This is conveniently a them problem. Yeah. It's yeah. I, I mean, it's it's grotesque and it's just offsetting your, your own responsibility. Um, so obviously, you know, I mean, this is a time where any any material effort you can put forth to help women out in and I, I don't want to say women I, I misspoke you there any anyone um who can get pregnant and and has any need or possible need for abortions birth control also you know a lot of these abortion clinics did did other things like proper not abstinence um centric uh sex ed and of course this abortion ban will essentially crack down on their their funding and thus on that you know um hormone therapy type things, you know, I mean, abortion clinics do a lot of things, right? And and every bit of this not only bans the actual abortions, but again, this is this is openly fomenting attack on them. This is this is a chop at their funding, at their support. Um and, and so this this harms all of those arenas. Um any help you can get on anybody affected by any of those issues in Texas specifically and, and anywhere across the country because the I mean this is declaring open season on attacking you know, abortion rights and, and abortion clinics. Um, yes, I mean, definitely help. Um, and that, of course, comes at a time where people are already asking for help uh, because that turns us to our next current okay. event. Um, it is how many years to the day? 16. It was the, 16, 16 years. years to the day I had to hit New Orleans. Uh, Since Zach, Katrina, for those of us, Since for Katrina. those of our listeners that may... Not be American actually be young enough, yeah, young not enough or not American centric enough to, to, to be know, familiar you know, with Katrina, yeah, yeah to know uh, our specific hurricane issues. Yeah, if you bring up a hurricane and and you talk about New Orleans in the United States, your brain probably rightly goes to Katrina, right? This was a, yeah. a horrible disaster where uh, Blackwater. This was the middle of their rebrand, right? So they had rebranded from Blackwater. Uh, to I think it was Z at the time spelled X E. They hadn't rebranded to what they are now, which is Academy, where they work with Google on drones. Um, and they were sent out along with you know white supremacists and the police to cut down on looting, which it just kill people for you know yeah, in, sport. in the idea for sport. The idea is protecting property, which Over is ridiculous. Life. Over human life, which is absurd already. On top of that, this is property where, and people always do that. Well, they're stealing TVs. They don't need that. First off, they can sell that shit and they need money. Second off, they're probably not stealing TVs. You're over amplifying the few times they are. This is, you know, I mean, that's that's Project Veritas talking point amplifying Reagan fucking, um, um, you know, Cadillac driving uh, welfare, welfare queen. queen type shit. And again, it's it's very, very racist, right? People are, are searching for food and you're calling them looters. Um, and and so in this this name of property, which is basically insured anyway, and regardless if it wasn't insured, people are more important than property. Instead of sending out, you know, to, to properly make sure people are housed, make sure people are, are properly rescued uh, all the way out of there, uh, make sure people uh, can get their lives back in order, have, have medicine and, and food and clothes as they need. Uh, they're attacking people for getting through this themselves very, very violently. 
Um, there were several groups where they would, they would hole up in large groups and the black people couldn't go out to get the stuff because they would get shot. So they had to send the white people out to do the quote unquote looting because only black. No, then it's just survival. Then it's just, then it's just a, a, a fraught attempt at survival. Right. When white people are doing it, when black people are doing it, it's looting. Right. And of course, if you get holed up and you're not in a large group with white people to send out, what the fuck are you going to do? Um, again, you know, also Katrina was was open season for gentrification in New Orleans. So we're going to see a similar phenomenon after this, after charter Ida. schools, they mm-hmm. came in. charter schools blew up after that. You're going to see, you know, probably a similar effect again. Um, and so, yeah, people are in very real danger. That's on top of the flooding, the natural disaster. That's on top of having their livelihoods destroyed. That's on top of if they can safely escape. Uh, there's never a good evacuation plan. It's never properly planned out and meted out. No. And and when there is, I mean, people's work demands them. They struggle to get off or worry about losing their livelihood. Uh, you know, they if they leave their houses, um, you know, they have to worry about. I mean, people freak out about their pets surviving, but they they care deeply about these these pets. Or people have nowhere to go, right? Or Food, people I mean, work- think someone think about think about the amount of take a refrigerator. How mm-hmm. much? How much money does it cost to replace everything in your refrigerator right now? Yeah. And do you have the money to do like there are a lot of things. There are a lot of factors that play into an evacuation. Um, right. That, right. That are so, just not thought of. Right. And and so these people are trying to protect what they have any way they can um, and survive. And it makes it very difficult to get out on top of that. You're not offering very much evacuation consist, uh, assistance. I mean, we all remember the disaster that was the Superdome. Again, I say we all remember. Again, some of our listeners are not America-centric, and some are not old enough. But those of us who are old enough and America-centric remember the disaster that was the Superdome during Katrina yep. and the, the roof um, you know, Collab- uh, collapsing. Well, it wasn't full. It was like broke a no. hole in it. Um, you know, I mean, you, you're going to... It was a terrible disaster, and now again. And... The whole FEMA collapse, the whole Blackwater, it's not playing out that much differently, right? Their response with a Democrat in office, this, this was probably George Bush's biggest non-Iraq war, like, scandal. It was or, his biggest or, domestic, it was his biggest domestic scandal, yeah. Domestic scandal. And Biden immediately essentially does the same thing, right? I mean, I don't think people even realize Blackwater was, was sent out. Under Bush, and and I don't know if Biden's doing something similar because we found out months later with Bush with that. But he, there's not the same Cheney, you know, connection there. But he's upping police. I mean, this crime bill writer with with the cop vice president is upping an anti looting force. That's their reaction to this. And this one is so bad that it went across land all the way to the northeast and from Philadelphia to New York City, who also were not properly evacuated and not prepared for this at all. There are record floods. This is while the western United States is still drought on and on fire. And on fire. And on fire. And there are record floods across the eastern United States. There this were is tornadoes what- in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean, we live somewhere like me and Nathan do, where tornadoes happen, right? And oh, even yeah, then, no, no, I expect then, a tornado. I live in a place that's called Tornado Alley. I know where I live, right? And even then, like, like it's scary, you know. I mean, was two two hours, three hours southwest of us, Joplin just got completely wiped out, wiped off the map, ago, yeah. wiped off the map. Yeah, huge town. Um, you know, I mean, tornadoes are scary as hell, and that's us being used to them. 
Yeah. And and <laughs> and not dealing with them in the middle because of a he's flood not used also. Right. Right. I mean, so this is terrifying. You know, people are dying, people are having their homes destroyed, people don't know what to do, people don't know where to go. Um well, so again, no, they and, do know what to do, David. They do know what to do, and that's uh, okay. order Grubhub. <laughs> yeah. God, that's order that was, Grubhub. How do you send a gig worker out to risk their life so that you can have it just and and and, and I don't even want to over talk on that too because that is terrifying and life threatening to that person, right? Yes. But I don't know at the other end that the other person that wasn't like their only access, the only way they could have gotten a meal, like maybe they couldn't get out to get a meal. That's this is all on the system. Every bit of this is on this the system. This is all on the system itself. Exactly. This, this is, is what on I'm the saying system. is that it is yeah. I'm not saying that the person on the other end of that is is maybe morally they are bankrupt. maybe this is, maybe they, they could be, they, they could just be a privileged morally bankrupt There's asshole. They could plenty be that. Of people out there like that. But even even if they are in the situation that you say, the fact that the solution to that that our system has is to take a person in precarity, take another mm. person in precarity, and throw them through each through a gauntlet that might kill them in order to yeah. survive is an indictment on the system as a whole. Oh, yeah. And and if they're not, they're the horrible person that they probably are, right, that just sent this worker out there. Uh, okay, why does the system allow that? This is all yeah. on the system. The system yes. fucked it all up. And there are real, tangible people who benefit from this system, who who are in charge of this system. And as long as those people remain unharmed while we die, the system keeps on chugging because they benefit, right? That's what this podcast is Speaking about. Speaking of people... Speaking of people that are unharmed while we die, not to not to diminish the the current events going on mm-hmm. in in Louisiana and the Northeast. Again, we seriously hope every comrade that that can hear this is safe and and able to to get out of the way, of, uh, get out of harm's way. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking of people that aren't punished by the system uh, that that cause these sorts of issues, I, I would like to touch briefly on the Sackler family. Oh yes. Uh, The Sackler family, who, for those of you that don't know, were the owners, uh, operators, proprietors of Purdue Pharma. Uh, Purdue Pharma being namely the company that branded, marketed, pushed, and and made OxyContin the killer monster uh, opioid that it is today. Um, Just got a blanket bankruptcy ruling that, that was negotiated behind closed doors that basically says they can no longer be sued. Yeah. For Oxycontin lawsuits. Yeah. Your family member dies because these people made a shit ton of profit off your suffering and you can't even group up with a bunch of other suffering people and get a pennies on the dollar pittance after paying a lawyer because they that deny these guys a little too much financially. They deny they deny all wrongdoing. They they say that everything they did was above board and ethical and everything's fine and they are not allowed anymore to be sued. There is a blanket settlement of I think it's something in the effect of five billion dollars or like four point eight billion dollars, which is pennies on mm-hmm. the dollar compared to what they would face if they were actually forced to reckon with what they caused with the damage yes. that they caused. Yes. Um, and they just get to walk away. They get to walk away. The company gets to be restructured as a public trust company. They still get to remain one of the richest families in the world. I was going to say, not not only is it pennies on the dollars compared to what they'd face, they're still one of the richest families in the planet. In the, on the planet. On the planet. They're one of the richest families in the in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the judge basically just threw up his hands and goes, well, it should have been more, but what can I do? Mm-hmm. It, it is an absolute... Indi- it, 
everything again in, and someone someone put it up real good if this person was a was a corner dope peddler if this person was someone that was just selling heroin on the streets uh they're all of their every one of their assets they would have been arrested they would have been thrown in jail for life or close to it and every one of their assets would have been given away under civil forfeiture mm-hmm. but because you're billionaires nothing happens to you yeah meanwhile if like you know china indicts jack ma it's authoritarian hellhole um, yeah exactly you know, oh exactly oh yeah there's another current event oh my god so skewed coverage of god china once it. again god damn it we they, are not going to talk about china gaming scandal are we please god don't are, tell me we have to now. We have no we to. don't oh god we don't so china has limited gaming for children multiplayer under gaming multiplayer Multi- gaming specifically multiplayer so even even if you need an online connection for single player you're still allowed to do it obviously if your friend comes over and sits down next to you and you play multiplayer just like side by side like like playing mortal Kombat or something you're good right we're this old is only- we're old because we're mortal old. Kombat was the most current reference david could pull <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> I am the crotchety old man of this podcast. We've established this. Um, but online multiplayer gaming is limited to three specific hours a week. In addition, in this same bill, this this came out. All It's a broad mental health and, and socialization bill for the betterment of children. Uh, it also has restrictions on testing and harsh testing in schools. And it has restrictions on homework. So, and I think it did something to revamp the tutoring system, right? So that you can't yes. exploit the tutoring system. Yes. So you can't exploit it. This was part of a, 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 there's been a long promise by Xi Jinping to, this is about a four-year-old promise, I think, to get rid of the exploitative tutoring system, which made some very rich people a whole lot of money. And again, was a big part of, of this pressure to perform in schools that had, had come up since the opening up of the economy um, in the late eighties and early nineties in China. Um, because again, the competitive nature of, of capitalism, even though these are there's very specific markets that that happens in, yeah. um, but people don't understand that most of China's economy has always been centrally planned. There's only very specific markets, and those are, are tightly restricted. Uh, but this is a deeper restriction on on one of the outcomes of that for the betterment of Chinese citizens, specifically children, and all people. Because again, this is breathless American coverage. All people can care about is authoritarian hates on gamers and it's like first off if they did what you said if they wrote a law only on gaming and they just straight up banned this online game even though we know we know ourselves this isn't totally bad right it's not like you go play nathan plays final fantasy i was about to say david this is a final fantasy 14 podcast in addition to being a uh, st louis blues podcast if you uh want to come down on online gaming i will fight you to the death right now but but we know, I mean, broader, there, there's a lot of problems with just online gaming culture and, and constant online gaming to, to socialization, to things like that, right? And I'm a goddamn adult. I can make my own decisions about my online gaming. Right, habits. but this is children we're talking about. I know, I know. And, and you wouldn't be restricted in China. I know, um, I could play all the Final Fantasy fourteen I want. All day long. Mm. And... Yeah. Um, and so, you know, this is just something to care about children. And and it's not as bad and it's not as gaming focused or any of those things as it's covered in the press. It's it's a ridiculous coverage. Um, and then I guess there's one last current event I, I need to say. I know we've been going at this a while. Whoo, yeah, we have. But I'd be remiss if with the fact that we we had to bring up Hawaii um last week re- reminding us of indigenous struggles. 
and we're talking about climate change effects right now. I feel like we haven't mentioned line three and stop line three efforts since about March or April, even though they've been going on all summer. I sincerely hope it's been longer than that, but I agree with you. It's probably been too long. I, David, David, give yeah. us a quick, you have, you have less than two minutes. Well, okay. Go. Well, I just, just, just updates. Of course, you know, I mean, there's been immense droughts in addition to targeted water draining for this pipeline. Uh, this is something that affects, of course, indigenous sovereignty as well as the environment. And the company that does this is notorious for leaks and Minnesota where the water protectors are fighting for is the source of it's like 80% or 90% of the water in the United States comes from Minnesota. So this is extremely dangerous. Um, I think most of the fighting is done by the Ashinami people right now. Um, but basically anyone who can get bodies on the line and fight this, this is direly important to do everything you can to, to, to fight. Because even the, the, the light tap legislation where we think there's a victory doesn't seem to be really having results. It seems like they don't really care when they're building this line three and they just blast right through it. And of course, cops are hitting people with rubber bullets and arresting them, brutalizing them. And I think that's what kind of brought it up is so Standing Rock, people remember that, right? Again, water protectors fighting against a major oil pipeline and faced tons of police brutality. And the number of arrests there was like 750, 800, something like that. Mm-hmm. the months of fighting line three, even through COVID restrictions, even with less people out there, even with less media attention to this, uh, the arrest numbers have climbed up to about the same as standing rock. So this is an immense fight and we need to make sure that through all of this, a- again, you know, as, as climate change is a hot button issue as indigenous sovereignty is something that we deeply care about in our fight. You know, I mean, this is what we talked about, right? I mean, socialism in the United States, the entire basis has to rest on land back with the inclusion of, of a new Africa across the black belt. This, this is a pivotal fight, a pivotal fight that has been going on for months and it is not getting even the attention it deserves, let alone the financial support for the bail funds, let alone the on-the-ground um, fighting and, and support, let alone the the you know media coverage, any of it, and we need to stand by by the water protectors with this in any way we can, yes. you know, physically, financially, uh, at advocacy, any any way we can, and obviously throughout all of that, keep them centered. I mean, they they do have a website for this fight that they've been putting out there. Uh, So if you go to stopline3.org, there is a take action section um, to kind of help you, you know, help you voice your support, uh, help your, you know, know where to donate, um, who who's organizing, things like that. Any way you can you can uh, offer support. There's actual resources out there um, through that site. But this is a fight that we absolutely have to fully invest our, our time in, our attention in, everything, amidst all the other chaos that's happening. Amen. That being said, here's something that we're going to do. We don't normally do this. I am committing to you 10 pages this week. Mm. You're getting 10 pages out of us. David almost vomited in his mouth. Yeah, that, uh, was, that was a rough promise. Hold on. That was a rough promise. It's going to happen. You're getting, you're getting 10 pages because we are finishing this damn book one way or another. Uh, so you're getting 10 pages. If that takes us an hour and a half, it takes us an hour and a half. If it takes us 
an hour, it takes us an hour, but you're getting 10 pages. That being said, we're starting on page 653. We're starting halfway down the page with this was, in fact, a restoration of education to local reactionary control and cutting off all higher training of Negroes from public help. Alabama felt the result of this narrow policy for many years. The Freedmen's Bureau schools in the state reached only a small portion of the Negroes, and there were a few missionary schools. It is likely that for five years there was not more than 200 northern teachers in the state, and a majority of the white people were hostile toward the education of the Negro. In Florida, a school at Fernandia was established in 1862 by the Reverend Dr. Barrows, who was superintendent with a half dozen white northern teachers. In Jacksonville, the Odd Fellows Hall was seized by the United States Provost General and turned over to Dr. Barrows for a school building. Here, a school was opened for both Negroes and for whites. When the white children remonstrated against attending school with black children, Mr. Mrs. Hawks, the lady principal, said, Very well. The colored children will be educated, even if you will not. Oh, Mrs. Hawks, yes. (laughs) Yes. It is reported that this type of argument proved effective, and the two races got along harmoniously in school for a time. Several disturbing factors prevented this experiment in democracy from continuing. First, the schools were built upon military force and outside workers, rather than the community itself. And secondly, public education was new to Florida and came at a time when it could least afford to have it from the point of view of finances and personnel. Now, I, I do want to put a little pin in that with the the uh, schools being built upon military force and outside workers rather than the community itself. It's a, a good reminder of something that we always advocate under socialism is, you know, I mean, we all fight for each other. We all fight in solidarity and we all need each other to fight for each other. That solidarity is vitally important. But in the end, you can't liberate other people. You have to offer solidarity and offer your support so that they have the power and, and, and support and the tools they need to liberate themselves. But people have to liberate themselves. People have to build the community and build the systems. Yep. Schools were closed in 1864, but education continued in federal military camps. Negro schools began again under the Freedmen's Bureau in 1865, helped by missionary societies, including two colored groups, the AME Church of the African Colonization Society of New York, The Constitution of 1865 under Johnson's Reconstruction established a uniform system of education without specific provisions. There were 30 schools at the close of 1865. The Committee on Negroes recommended immediate education for Negroes, but the legislature of 1866 compromised by establishing a state system of Negro schools under which Negroes were to pay for their own schools. E.B. Duncan eventually became superintendent of both the state and the Freedmen's Bureau schools. This system of schools was based on the plan of making the poor pay for their own tax education. The schools for freedmen were to be supported by tax of $1 upon all male persons of color between 1 and 55 and a tuition fee to be collected from each pupil and the fee for a teacher certificate, $5, was also to go to the school's fund for freedmen. The superintendent was to establish schools for the freedmen when the number of children of persons of color in any county or counties should warrant it. Provided the funds provided for shall be sufficient to meet the expense thereof. The freedmen themselves erected schoolhouses and provided further school funds. Some good schools were established under the superintendency of the Reverend E.B. Duncan, an able, conscientious man who worked hard to establish colored schools in every county. At that time, railroad facilities were very poor, and I have known him to walk from county to county in South Florida to establish colored schools. Holy shit. Gradually, the Bureau schools were absorbed into the state system. 
Although the Bureau was the paramount authority during the period of military rule, 1866 to 1868. So whatever uh, mental Rolodex you have of revolutionaries who don't get enough respect. The Reverend E.B. Duncan needs to go Reverend E.B. Duncan insert in there. Under Negro suffrage came the law of 1869, and all of Florida's educational historians, how many Florida educational historians are there, grant that this was the real beginning of the public school system in this state. Near the end of the radical Republican administration, conditions in education among Negroes of Florida were improved. The field of primary education was virgin. 71,000 inhabitants over 10 years of age were literate. 18,000 of them were white. By the end of 1870, 331 schools were open with 14,000 pupils in attendance, one-third of whom were Negroes. Probably the most outstanding character in the early life of the Florida public school system was a Negro, Jonathan C. Gibbs, whose colorful and efficient career has been noticed in Chapter 13, or Chapter 12, apologies. I was about to say that name sounds familiar, so. Uh-huh. After acting as Secretary of State for three years, he was appointed late in 1872 Superintendent of Public Instruction, an office which he held until his death in 1874. It was then a post of considerable difficulty as the first enthusiasm for a new school system had subsided and political complications and embarrassment about school funds had come in to hinder progress. But by his energy and enthusiasm in the cause, he so far succeeded that in the month of August 1873, he had the pride and pleasure of saying before the National Education Association, the census of 1860 antebellum shows that Florida had in her schools 4,486 pupils at an expense of $75,412. Today, Florida has 18,000 pupils in school at an expense of $101,820, fully four times as many pupils at an increase of only 33% expense. In 1876, when the Republicans were driven from power, 676 public schools had been established with 28,444 pupils, black and white, costing $158,846.36. In North Carolina, Negroes early pushed toward public education. There had been private schools for free Negroes before the war, and they had been, they had the example of John Chavis, who studied at Princeton and at what is now Washington and Lee University. Among his white pupils were a United States senator, a governor of the state, and the sons of a chief justice. All accounts agree that John Chavis was a gentleman. When the law stopped him from teaching white students, he taught a school for free Negroes in Raleigh. In 1867, it was reported that many instances had come to notice where the teachers of a self-supporting Negro school had been sustained until the last cent the freedmen could command was exhausted, and where these last had even drawn on their credit in the coming crop to pay the bills necessary to keep up the school. David. The most severe critics of Reconstruction must admit that the Convention of 1868 and the Legislature of 1868-1869 set up a fine school system for North Carolina, so far as it could. The poverty of the state made the realization of this system immediately an impossibility, but no one can place at the door the laxity the laxity and gaffed of the administrative officers, which afterwards characterized the Department of Public Instruction. What is, I, I guess, laxity, just being laid back and lazy? La- yeah, laid back, lax. Okay. Um, their work was to provide a system of public schools for the state of North Carolina, and this they did. The only error with which one may lo- charge them is that they did not set up a system calling for separate schools for Negro and white children, and many people there are who would not class this as an error. Is it 
in that quote saying that it's bad that they didn't segregate the schools? That's confusing uh, to me. Yeah, it's a little hard to tell. Um, Let's keep going and see. Okay. Article 9 of the new Constitution, the section dealing with the education, made provision for a general system of public schools with tuition free to all persons between the ages of 6 and 21. The counties were to be divided into school districts in which at least one school must exist and run for a minimum term of four months. The entire state system was to be governed by a board of education composed of the governor of the state, the lieutenant governor, the secretary of the state, the treasurer, the superintendent of public works, the auditor, the superintendent of public instruction, and the attorney general. The money to support this system was to come from appropriations from the state treasury, from county taxation, certain fines from the courts, and certain other funds, such as a pre-war literary fund. The school laws were more thoroughly set forth than any other time in history of the state. S.S. Ashley, a northern white man who favored mixed schools, was selected superintendent. Well, that's good. We should favor mixed schools. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The new superintendent of public instruction made his first report of the status of ed- education in North Carolina in November of 1868. The new school laws had just been passed and sufficient time had not elapsed for any considerable amount of constructive work to be accomplished. The act authorizing the org- organization of a system of schools was not passed until April 1869. $100,000 was appropriated chiefly to come to the poll tax. This report showed that there was a total of three hundred and thirty thousand dollars, or I'm sorry, total. Why did I do the dollars? A total of three hundred thirty thousand children between the ages of six and twenty-one in the state. Of this number, two hundred twenty-three thousand were white, and one hundred six thousand were Negroes. I just I've read read too many stats on here. It's melting my brain. Um, there were 1,900 schoolhouses or buildings used for school purposes, of which 178 could definitely be classed as good, and 685 were just as definitely to be thought of as bad. The remainder of the buildings were probably neither very good nor particularly bad, on the assumption that the legislature would appropriate the $100,000 called for in the school law, Superintendent Ashley apportioned the sum among the, the counties, the cap, the capitation tax was supposed to supplement this so as the total from the state to the counties was reckoned at $165,000 or 50 cents per census child. A capitation tax is a direct uniform tax opposed upon each head or person. It's a poll tax. Thank you. Um, This was only an apportionment as, as the first money out of the state treasury, which was actually went, which actually went for the support of public education was not yet distributed. Ashley's second report, issued the autumn of 1869, gives one an idea of the general situation and is especially helpful in the matter of Negro education, as it contains the report of the Reverend John Wesley Hood, the Negro who had been appointed to the assistant superintendent of public instruction in charge of the Negro schools. J.W. Hood, afterward bishop of the AME Zion Church, had been given his position by the Board of Education, but it appears that no legal provision had been made for his office. In calling attention to the support, Ashley simply states that he had been secured as an agent of the Board of Education and as Assistant Superintendent of the Public Instruction. Hood had visited every section of the state in compiling his report, and Ashley asked that attention be given to it as it represents a more intelligent and complete view of the work of education among the colored population of the state than has yet been given. 
Hood reported that there were 257 Negro schools with an enrollment of 15,600, chiefly carried on by the churches and missionary societies. Ashley estimated 25,000 colored pupils in all, but the financial support of the public schools was bad. It improved, however, by 1872. That year, $412,000 was appropriated, and a property tax helped to raise the funds. Just as success seemed in sight, the Democratic Party in North Carolina entered upon its historic policy of white control. The results of the return of whites to power were soon shown. In 1870, the salary of the superintendent of public instruction was reduced from $2,400 to $1,500, and his appropriations for travel and clerks cut off. The state lost the services of both Ashley and Hood. From yet another quarter was Negro education to receive a blow in the same year. The legal life of the Freedmen's Bureau had expired before this time, but the agents had remained in the field, winding up its affairs. The last of the reports dealing with the Education Bureau is dated July 1870. The very fact that it was generally disliked by the Southern whites is testimony in favor of its effectiveness. And though it didn't antagonize the whites on the question of educating the Negro, it stood behind the schools for these same Negroes until such time as they had become pretty well established. Without the support of the Bureau, it is doubtful if any of these schools for Negroes would have existed very long. Reasons of local hostility and financial stringency make this seem probable. A professor of the faculty at the University of North Carolina, Alexander McIver, McIver, was appointed by the new governor to fill out the unexpired term of Ashley. McIver served in this position until January 1st, 1875, when he was succeeded by Stephen D. Poole. Poole promptly stole the money of the Peabody Fund entrusted to his care, providing proving that theft in North Carolina was not confined to the Negroes and carpetbaggers. He was removed from office the following year. In 1872, there were 119,083 white pupils and 55,000 colored pupils in school. For a long time, there was a continual fear of mixed schools, but an amendment to the Constitution finally eliminated this. In Virginia, the Constitutional Convention of 1867-68 to 68 had 25 Negroes, and they and some of the whites were eager to educate the children. The attempt to educate a public school, establish a public school system was vigorously opposed by the reactionaries. But with the backing of the Negroes, the Constitution provided for a uniform system of public schools to be established not later than 1876. This was adopted by the voters in 1869, and W.H. Ruffner became superintendent of public instruction in 1871. The Constitution did not provide for separate schools, but the laws under it did. And the support of the schools was to be obtained from a corporation tax of a dollar and a small property tax. The first schools were opened in 1870, and by the end of the year, there were 2,900 schools with 130,000 pupils and 3,000 teachers. Of these, 706 were Negro schools with 38,554 pupils. The Negroes were eager for the schools, but the whites were largely indifferent. There was a scarcity of Negro teachers, and many white teachers were used. In Arkansas, there was a so-called school system before the war. I, I worry about that. Yeah. But the governor in 1860 called it radically defective and noted only 25 common schools organized and kept up in the whole state from the common school funds. The beginnings of popular education in Arkansas were under the Reconstruction government in 1868. So we once again see that general public education, including for white people, comes about because of Reconstruction, because of something to benefit black people. And white people could not have that. 
And that's the struggle we have now. Yep. Negroes themselves under 1865 established the first free schools in Arkansas. They did this at this. They did at Little Rock, where they were after paying tuition for a short time. They formed themselves into an educational association paid by subscription, the salaries of teachers and made the schools free. In July 1865, General Sprague appointed William M. Colby general superintendent of refugees and freedmen to cooperate with the state authorities and, if possible, work out a system of education for those classes. Little progress had been made in Negro education under the lessee system, and Colby had little to build on. Many Arkansas whites did not approve education under the Bureau because they feared it encouraged the dreaded social equality. Under the Freedmen's Bureau, Negroes built schoolhouses and sometimes furnished as much as 33% of the cost of instruction. The civil government did little toward the encouragement of Negro education, as had been stated earlier. Little free school education was furnished for anyone. The legislature of Arkansas on July 2, 1867, provided for a rather pretentious public school system, but all benefits were limited to whites. This was in direct contradiction to the ordinance passed at the Constitutional Convention of 1864. The Constitution of 1868 provided for the maintenance of a system of free public schools for the gratuitous instruction of all persons in the state between the ages of 5 and 20 years. On July 3, 1868, Governor Clayton approved the law under which education was to be carried on. A state board of education had begun under the lessee system and continued under the Freedmen's Bureau, but this was the first time the civil government had made any provisions for it. The expense of public school education. Yes, David? Oh, I was just going to take No, you're not. The expense of public school education was to be taken by taxation. The masses, black and white, were unprepared for this. Competent teachers were scarce, and school officials were often indifferent. This made the situation very trying. Nevertheless, the work of organization was begun, August 1st, 1868, with Thomas Smith as state superintendent. The Freedmen's Bureau turned over to the school authorities all schools under its control and entered heartily into the development of Negro schools under the new order. Now you can read if you like to. Okay. In March 1869, a few schools were reported organized. On June 15, 1869, the Daily Republican claimed that there were in successful operation nearly, if not quite, 300 schools. The school funds were reduced somewhat in the fall of 1869 because of tax collectors squandering of the proceeds, of course. Uh, As a result, many school terms were cut and others were closed completely, but some continued. Teachers were, as a rule, inefficient. White teachers in Negro schools were held in contempt. The textbooks were usually fixed by the school board, and occasionally the Democratic press demanded that only books of Southern production be used. How has that reared its ugly head today? Uh Uh-huh. There's what two two school book monopolies, both of which are based around Texas, and mm-hmm. just every white supremacist myth out there is hammered in our heads growing up in U.S. schools. Yep. Uh, J.C. Corden, a Negro graduate of Oberlin, was state superintendent of education from January 16, 1873, to October 30, 1874. Under the Democratic administration, the schools were closed during the years of 1874 and 1875, and the attendance in 1876 was only 8% of the school population. But from that time onward, it gradually increased from year to year. The year 1870 remained the high watermark in school attendance for a period of at least 20 years. In Texas, as a result of the work of the Freedmen's Bureau, the educational work, which was under the charge of Lieutenant E.M. Wheelick, 
advanced to such an extent that by the end of January 1865, there were in operation 26 day and night schools with an enrollment of about 1,600 pupils. These schools were supported partly by voluntary contributions, partly by a small tuition fee. The number of pupils enrolled in the school September 1st, 1866 was over 4,500 with 43 teachers. When the state Republican Party was organized, they advocated free common schools and free homesteads out of the public lands, open to all without distinction of color or race. During the convention of 1868 to 1869, the Committee on Education reported that there were provisions for increasing the existing permanent school fund by adding to it all money to be received from the sale of the public domain and for all applying to all the available fund to the education of all children with the scholastic age from 6 to 18 years without distinction of race or color. The public school system in Texas was at first in a large measure a failure because of popular hostility to the admission of Negroes to the public schools, coupled with inefficient management by counties. In the convention, which reconstructed Louisiana in 1864, the bank system of schools was discussed, and there was a motion to declare it unconstitutional, but it was finally approved by a vote of 72 to 9. There was a motion to call it unconstitutional, and then it got 72 out of 81. (laughs) There was, however, a great diversity of opinion as to the ways and means of providing for the system. It was decided at first to establish schools for whites supported by the white taxation and schools for Negroes to be supported by black taxation. You see this now when counties and cities actually fund the school from their local taxes and then places are just kind of naturally segregated. Uh, It was argued that unless this measure was adopted, whites and blacks might be compelled to attend the same schools. Oh, heavens forbid! Uh, the friends of the freedmen feared that he would suffer by separate taxation. The mover of the previous resolution, Terry, moved some three weeks later that there should be no separate taxation of the races and that the legislature should provide for the education of all children between the ages of 6 and 18 by the maintenance, by taxation or otherwise, of free public schools. This provision being adopted by a vote of 53 to 27 was incorporated into the Constitution. By the Constitution of 1868, all children were admitted to the public schools regardless of color. The law thus provided for compulsory mixed schools, a condition which prevailed until 1877. As a matter of fact, there were not a great many cases where colored children were pupils in white schools, so that the mixed schools were not universally prevalent. The children of Governor Pinchback, for example, were escorted to a white school by a policeman, but often run off by white hoodlums after the policeman had disappeared. The Freedmen's Bureau, again, you see the the roots of, of, you know, the Jim Crow era already popping up. Oh, yeah. Because it was a a terrifyingly smooth transition with a little hump of reconstruction in between. Um, The Freedmen's Bureau was was the salvation of Negro education in Kentucky. By the middle of 1866, 35 Negro schools had been established with 58 teachers. The number increased to 139 in 1869. In 1866, there were 58 teachers with an enrollment of 4,122 pupils. An average attendance of 3,215 was maintained. In 1869, the number of teachers had reached 1,080 and the pupils 18,891. Most of the teachers were Negroes with a few whites from the north. The revenue for those schools was obtained by the state taxes levied on Negroes, private donations, and sometimes tuition fees. 
by a law passed in 1866, all Negro taxes, including a poll tax, were to be divided equally between Negro schools and Negro paupers. In 1867, an additional poll tax of $2 was levied on Negroes, but it was soon repealed in 1871 after considerable Negro opposition. In 1863, Negroes also threatened to appeal to state and federal courts to obtain by legal process equal school advantages, as they should have. Uh Uh-huh. Not until the advent of Sack F. Smith as state superintendent of education in 1867 did public school education in Kentucky take on new growth. It was in the 1869 elections the people voted an increase in school taxes to 20 mils on the dollar. By 1871, the school receipts had increased from less than $400,000 in 1869 to almost $1 million. The number of districts from 4,400 to 5,100. The number of pupils from 376,000 to 405,000. In the District of Columbia, Negroes began their self-supportive schools in 1807. Led by three former slaves, a great educational movement began. Other schools followed during the 19th century, and finally, efforts to start a free school system for Negroes in the district were made in 1856. The project was overwhelmingly defeated by white voters at the polls because of fucking course it was. Of course it was. In 1862, May 21st, Congress passed an act providing that 10% of the taxes collected from colored people be appropriated to establish public schools for Negroes. Three trustees for Negro schools in Washington and Georgetown were appointed by the Secretary of the Interior, but even the meager funds for this provided were only in part turned over to the Negroes. For two years, only $736 had been credited to the Color School Fund, and the first public school for Negroes was not opened until March 1864. In 1864, another act became the fundamental school law for the whole district. This provided that the authority should set apart every year from all its receipts for educational purposes such proportionate part thereof as the number of colored children between the ages of 6 to 17 years and the respective cities bear to the whole number thereof for the purpose of establishing and sustaining public schools in said cities for the education of colored children. In 1866, Congress appropriated $10,000 to publish schools to purchase school sites and erect buildings. And after these laws, the Negroes began to receive a just proportionment of school funds. It was not until the year 1867 that these trustees obtained sufficient funds to undertake the establishment of any considerable number of schools. Previous to that time, for about three years, from 60 to 80 colored schools had been maintained at a large expense by various benevolent associations in the northern states. There were 26 private schools in 1864. Between 1860 and 1864, $135,000 was contributed by philanthropists for the work. After this, for several years, the white and colored school system were practically separate, each with their own superintendent. Finally, about 1890, one general superintendent with white and colored assistants under him combined the two school systems. In Delaware, early attempts at education at the education of co- the colored youth were made by Negroes themselves, and it was not until 1875 that schools for Negroes had any recognition by the state. By personal taxes, tuition fees, and voluntary contributions, these people were able to keep up the work of education until the General Assembly of the state assumed the responsibility in 1881. Since that date, the work of educating Negroes has been a matter of public concern with much discrimination against the colored schools. I really like that Du Bois included 
uh, Delaware there because it really underscores that it was reconstruction that brought about the public schooling system and this like North is not racist. South is racist divide. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's crap. It's nationwide. It's nationwide. In the other border states, the development of the Negro schools was somewhat different. Missouri and West Virginia established free schools about the same time that the other states did and made provisions for Negroes. Tennessee was slower, while Maryland, like Delaware, refused to provide for colored children at first and for a long time granted them only the taxes raised among themselves. Not until 1880 were the colored children generally in border states put on a legal footing with the children in, with other children in education. It will be noted that in early... In nearly all southern states, there were continual and well-proven charges of peculation and misuse of public school funds. This was not a part of the general charge of stealing and graft, but was the fault of local county officials. In most cases, the leading white landholders who took no part in the administration of the state nevertheless kept their hands upon local taxation and assessments and were determined that the impoverished property holders should not be taxed for Negro education. By various methods, direct and indirect, they thus continually diverted the school funds, and this class of white people were primarily the ones responsible for such dishonesty as there was in the administration of local school funds. On the other hand, there were Negro and poor white officials here and there who were guilty of waste and theft. During and after Reconstruction, diversion of school funds was common. In North Carolina, $136,076 was collected for education in 1870, but the Department of Education received only $38,931. In Louisiana, a million dollars worth of bonds for the school fund were used to pay the expenses of the legislature in 1872. In Texas, a large part of the income in public lands which belonged to the education fund was lost. In 1870, the school funds in Georgia were partially used for other purposes, and in 1874, Alabama school funds were diverted in Tennessee from 1866 to 1869. Only 47% of the school taxes were spent on schools. In nearly every state, the question of mixed and separate schools was a matter of much debate and strong feeling. There was no doubt that the Negroes in general wanted mixed schools. They wanted the advantages of contact with white children, and they wanted to have this evidence and proof of their equality. In addition to this, they were strengthened in their stand by white northern leaders who pointed out the practical difficulty of two separate systems of schools, which must to an extent duplicate efforts and would certainly greatly increase cost. In many of the states, the matter was left in absolute abeyance, and in some states like Louisiana, mixed schools were established. They raised a fury of opposition among the whites, but for reasons of economy and democracy, it was obviously the best policy. The propaganda of race hatred made it eventually impossible, and the separate school systems so increased the cost of public education in the South that they resulted in the hard R word. I'm just not going to use it. I'm sorry. Um, the the mm-hmm, R word of the whole school system, and eventually in making the Negro child bear the burden of the increased cost. So that even to this day, throughout the South, the Negro child has from one half to one tenth as much spent on his education as the white child. Oh, man, that didn't carry over today or anything like that. Yeah, no kidding. And even then, the white child does not receive sufficient funds for a thoroughly elementary education. Separation by race was prohibited in the Constitution of South Carolina and Louisiana. In Atlanta, the Board of Education wanted mixed schools, but allowed separate schools when they were desired. 
The trustees of the Peabody Fund caused the dropping of a clause prohibiting separate schools in the original draft of the Federal Rights Bill of 1875. One Southern... David? Oh, yeah, I was going to say we should probably call it there. Not yet! One Southern congressman's speech represents the strength of this fear. Woe be unto the political party which shall declare to the toiling yeoman the honest laboring poor of this country. Your children are no better than a Negro's. If you think so, you shall not practice on that opinion. We are the rulers. You are the servants. We shall know what is best for you and your children. We, the millionaires, we who are paid out of your pockets, will take your money and will send our children to select high schools, to foreign lands where no Negroes are. But you, who are too poor to pay, shall send your ragged, hungry urchins to the common schools on such terms as we dictate, or keep them away to stray among the treacherous quicksands and skulls of life to wander on the streets and learn to syllable the alphabet of vice and crime or to stay at home and like blind Samson in mental darkness, tramp barefoot the treadmill of unceasing toil. Sorry, I want to get that paragraph out. Now we can go ahead and end it. Holy shit is that that one that is really wearing it on its face and that that really underscores the intersection of, of race and class and how all of this is to maintain their special position, right? Like, how dare you bring black people into in, into our world? Uh, we'll take them away from the public schools and we'll send them off to, to private white-only places. By the way, this is a big part of how private schools work today. And, and they'll flaunt uh-huh. their wealth to keep them away from black people. Exactly. I mean, it's it's the whole charter school phenomenon, is it not? It, Yeah, except charter schools are technically. So the idea of charter schools is to privatize public schools for union bashing. Um, but also it gives you an idea of choice. But uh, you want to bet where white people are going to choose to go, given this this freedom, they're going to choose to go to schools that aren't full of black people. It's going to. It's going to not only profit people and take away regulation and union bust, uh, but it also well, – and I say it's going to. It, it does. But also it furthers segregation, uh, unofficial segregation. Yep. That being said, this has been a slightly but not that much longer episode of Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Uh, there are a number of different ways you can reach out to us if you would like to do that. The first of which is you can reach out to us via email. It's marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. The next way you can get to us is on Twitter. Our Twitter is at marksmadnesspod. Our DMs are open. You can always reach out to us there if, if, if that is your convenient platform of choice. If you want to talk to us on a more day-to-day basis and just have an open running dialogue that, that is natural and fun and delightful, you can join our Discord server. Our Discord is the Mark's Madness Discord. We Our link is in our Twitter bio, or you can always email us for a link and we'll give it to you there. Um, but that Discord server is where the day-to-day happenings go on, um, except for David, who only has to be summoned via bat signal. Um, but we'll get we, we he's very responsive when we summon him via the bat signal. So he, he comes when he's summoned. Um, I was going to say it popped in today. Exactly. Exactly. But those of us, uh, Nathan lives out in there and it is just a community of people that I'm very proud of and very happy to be a part of. Um, 
and we talk about all sorts of things just day-to-day life everything current events memes and uh obviously final fantasy 14 because that is the driving force of of my life right now because i need something to guide me in these dark times and it's apparently cat voice so that being said uh david would you like to give us the disclaimer for this week uh yeah so obviously we started this podcast because nathan came up to me wanting to read capital and that's kind of a book you want to read with other people just like any other work of theory or history and he said you've read this before let's read this together let's discuss it um and so we did and we decided to go ahead and record those sessions in case we could make our group a little bigger than two because you typically want it to be bigger than two people and lo and behold after the recordings went on for a while we decided yeah let's go ahead and produce a new podcast share it with everyone so we can expand this reading group to more people and since then what our goal is is that hopefully whatever party you're in whatever organize organization you're in uh whatever reading group or political education group they're reading that they're doing hopefully it's these works and we can be another voice another source of input and context and things like that into your group uh save for that uh let's assume your group is reading something shorter reading something more applicable to what you're focused on right now or what issues are popping up right now uh and you're just reading these works on your own Hopefully we can be that reading group and we can help give you that context, give you that further input, make sure you're stopping and discussing and thinking about what you're reading uh, and say for that, let's say it's, you know, either work like capital um, or the many works we read in between where we summarize them and kind of give you a rundown um, or something like this where it's more of an enhanced ebook and we go word for word with the context added, whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you, because we want these works out there guiding your actions, because when these works are animated into action, that's called praxis. And that political action doesn't exist without theory. And without that praxis, the theory is completely useless. They go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. And we've talked about, of course, a myriad of issues going on right now that could use all of your praxis. Hey, men, as always, that being said, again, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye.